You want to be sure and be here Wednesday night. Becky is doing a message on Mary this week, and Pastor Rick did a tremendous job this past week on the common people. Of course, I was in all the different departments and got bits and pieces, and you have to watch Pastor Rick when he's teaching. He's tricksy. He set questions up back there that I didn't even know the answer to, and um, I know he's smart, but I think Norma helped you with some of those questions. Am I right, Pastor Rick? Because I know she's smarter than both of us put together. So you want to be sure and be here Wednesday night uh, for the message that Becky will be doing. And of course, the kids and those of you that are in the special Christmas production next week, you want to be here as well. In my freshman days of college, I was reading the book of Proverbs for my devotions. And I'll tell you, that has become one of the richest, richest uh, disciplines in my life, and that's to read the Psalms and read Proverbs daily. If you'll read five chapters in Psalms, you'll get through them once a month. And if you'll read Proverbs, one chapter of Proverbs a day, you'll get through those once a month. And I'll confess there are times when I've just really taken my time and maybe taken five or six Proverbs and spent months in Proverbs or taken one Psalm and really worked on that one Psalm and taken almost a year to get through Psalms. But those two books have answered for me a prayer that I've always had since my earliest days, and I really going back as far as I can remember, is I prayed that I would be wise because I learned as a child that when Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom, it pleased him. And I've also prayed that I would know how to worship and to pray. And I, if anybody was to ask me what I thought my strengths were, and I don't say this to sound spiritual, but... My greatest strengths are not leadership. My greatest strengths are not communication. My greatest strengths, I think, are I just have an absolute profound trust in the Word of God and in prayer. I believe those two things are really the key to living and walking out a Christian life. And people who don't pray just simply find themselves struggling or else they're asleep in their faith and they don't realize what's happening around them. But it was in those days that I learned how to mark my Bible and put the date down and why a certain verse stood out to me. One particular morning before I went to class, the 730 class, this is what I read from Proverbs chapter 14. The wise are cautious and avoid danger. Fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence and short-tempered people do foolish things. I was in one of my freshman classes that morning when one of the students came in late to a professor that would later become a close friend of mine that I've preached for and have worked with on different projects. And then when I served at Southeastern, you know, in a, in a board capacity, we became even closer friends. But the student came in late and the professor challenged him like you would do with any of us. And this particular student, who was from Michigan, by the way, fired off at the professor, just, just let loose some sarcasm at him. I don't think he'd had his coffee in the morning or whatever it was. And my professor just simply looked at this student in front of the whole class and dismissed him from the class for the rest of the year because of his disrespect and his sarcasm. To the student's credit, he repented, stayed in college, and went on to go into ministry and as a friend, so I won't call his name out today. But I remember looking at that instance, thinking about this scripture, short-tempered people do foolish things, and deciding, hey, I saw a living lesson. Now, if you were to go to my computer, and Becky and my kids and have access to my computer, Pastor Corey's, uh, not Pastor Corey, but Pastor AJ used to go in and help out with stuff, and he's even asked me about, I have a large, large file. I mean, it's humongous, because I've converted a lot of my paper files to that. 
And it's called lumber. And lumber is just all these ideas and things that I've collected over the years. Little sayings, stories that I've heard. And then the lumber file is broken up and there's one way down towards the bottom called warnings. And under that, there's another folder called warnings to be heated. And I have collected things that I've watched other people do. If you watch other people make mistakes, you don't have to make the same mistake, right? You can go to school on their pain for free. Now, I think that's pretty good, right? I have made plenty of my own mistakes with my own pain, and if I can uh, learn a pain-free lesson, then that's a good lesson to learn. One of the things I think you need to see as we wrap up the book of Ephesians that we've been in since August this morning is Paul comes down to the end, and he's taken us, as I've tried to remind you every week, he's taken us to the to some of the most loftiest places. A few weeks I described it as the nosebleed section of the stands and he's helped us to see the glory of who God is. God's amazing love to us. He's unfolded God's plan in Christ for us. The mystery of the ages as Paul would refer to it. We've then taken all of that deep theology and we've looked at how Paul applies that to our lives, how we can have peaceful marriages. If you want a peaceful marriage, say a big amen this morning. Well, some of you don't want a peaceful marriage. How many of you want a peaceful marriage? Say amen. amen. How many of you want peaceful teenagers? Say amen. amen. There was a bigger amen there than it was on marriages. You see, what we have is he tells us how to have peaceful marriages, peaceful homes. He tells us how to have peaceful re- relationships, especially in our working relationships. We looked at that last week. But then he comes to a point in this message, and remember, he's writing to a church that's in danger of losing its place. It's dying. It's lost its fire. It's lost its passion. It's going through all the form. Forty years later, John will speak to this church again as Jesus singles out this church. It's over a 60-year period, this church two times goes through a place of almost dying. And so, Jesus himself will warn the church, you're about to lose your candlestick. You're about to lose your ministry. You do all all the right things, but you're missing something here. You've missed your first love. And so this morning, Paul writes and he says a final word. I've got a final word for you. It's like he's come to a conclusion. It's like I am preaching sometime. I'm trying to land and I'll see three or four fence posts down there and I circle thinking which fence post do I want to land upon to, to finish this message. And Paul looks and he goes, now You thought I was done, but a final word. It's like somebody said to me one time, Pastor, when you say in conclusion, it doesn't mean a thing, does it? And that's true. So don't be fooled when I say that later this morning. In conclusion, Paul says, oh, and a final word. And that final word, he says, you need to see the context that you're living in. You need to see the context. You need to understand where you're at. Context is important. Andrew was talking to me one time about some of the battles in Iraq and how different they were than some of the other battles they'd had to fight. Because our enemies would go into hospitals, our enemies would go into schools, our enemies would get into subdivisions and neighborhoods. And by the way, if that was Caleb, please don't take him out of church this morning. I can promise you, as long as we've got a sound man back there, I can preach louder than he can cry. Stand up there, Maggie, if you don't, or can you stand? And let's hold Caleb up. Everybody welcome Caleb to his first Sunday at Woodland Church. Dave, quit grinning. You didn't do anything there. Those two did all the work there. Thanks, Maggie. It's good to see you guys here this morning. But see the context you're living in. 
Andrew was telling me about how the battle would be different because of the way the guerrillas fought. They would use children. They would use, he was telling me about one experience where a guy was coming at them with a bomb holding a baby right in front of him because he knew they wouldn't shoot him with the baby. And all of the things that happened to our young son in war. My, my second son, Christopher, was called to a, a nation as an architect and because the church had come in and built some buildings. We had built some buildings and, and uh, for the Assemblies of God there, not our church, but the Assemblies of God had. And now because no one had consulted an architect or geologist, the buildings were sinking into the ground. And part of Chris's specialty in his studies at Lawrence Tech was on this thing. So they called Chris down there and he was able to give them advice and how to, to strengthen the foundations and get these buildings elevated. Because somebody built buildings without the context. We sent soldiers into a place where they had to learn the context. Those who fought in Vietnam understand there was a context that had to be learned. And so when you send your soldiers out or you go to build a building or you live in a community, you've got to understand the context. Because if you go out there to build a building or to build a wall like Nehemiah did and there's enemies who don't want you to build the wall, they come along and they try to discourage you. They do legal procedures. They threaten to attack you. And so Nehemiah told the builders, you've got to have a trowel in one hand and you've got to have a sword in the other hand. Because if you think you can build this wall, around Jerusalem without opposition, you are mistaken. See the context that you're living in. It's important that you exegete or you see the context of your subdivision, of the place that you work at, the school you attend. It's a very different context living in Down River than it is living in my hometown of Macon, Georgia, which was the buckle of the Bible Belt. So Paul says a final word. Now that I've told you how you can have peace, I've told you about the greatness of God and how you can have a strong marriage, a strong family, you can have good working relationships. He says, but there's a final word I need to say to you. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. What a powerful verse of Scripture. And you know, I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit was the editor of the Bible. Because if an editor who helps me with some of my writing, if an editor was to come in there, they would say, Dennis, you're using too many against right there. If you put it in Microsoft Word, Microsoft Word will suggest you're using too many against right there. But I highlighted every one of those against in my Bible because it's like the Holy Spirit is wanting us to understand you could have used just one against and it would have been grammatically correct, but he wants you to see you've got to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. The King James Version says the wiles. Other versions say devices, but I think this is a better word, the strategies. We're fighting against flesh and blood. Not, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits. He's like he's trying to show us we do have flesh and blood enemies. He's not saying that. We do have people, flesh and blood, that will gossip about us, that will try to hurt our reputations. We do have flesh and blood enemies who will try to attack our, our reputations. We do have flesh and blood enemies that will try to discourage our children. We do have flesh and blood enemies that will try to educate people not to believe the Word of God or trust the Word of God. We do have evil politicians that will try sometimes to get evil laws passed. But he says that is not the only context you're living in. He says 
there is a realm of darkness that you are warring against. And he says, sometimes they're in your Bible colleges and sometimes they're in your seminaries telling you that the Word of God is not infallible, that the Word of God is not inspired, or telling you that it was a word that was suited for that day and not for this day, or undermining your confidence in the Word of God and somehow or another what you want to believe and how you rationalize is more important. And somehow or another, I don't think he's saying that there's this hierarchical structure because the devil is limited and demons are limited. Only God is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent as we looked at in the first three chapters. But there are, as, as Michael would say, there was a prince of Persia that he warred against. There are spirits that somehow or another seem to assume control in certain regions of the country or certain colleges or certain denominations and you war against those things. Martin Luther recognized this in his battle of faith, not only with the Catholic Church, but even with his own faith and his personal battles. And in one of the lyrics that, or one of the courses in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he wrote, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dusk ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise? That's some of the most powerful lyrics I know. Every time I would preach at my alma mater at Southeastern, and they would ask in the chapel, is there a hymn you want sung? I would always request this hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, and then I would always request that we sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. I think it is vitally important that we recognize the battle that we are in, but we also recognize that we are fighting against a real enemy, and Christ has won the battle for us. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? So Paul says, now look, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord. In other words, there's a responsibility that you and I have. We can't be cavalier about this. We can't be lackadaical about this. But he says to Glenn, he says to Dennis, he says to Dan, he says to Michael, he says to Allie, you've got to be strong in the Lord, which means there's a reason that you've got to be strong. You're in a battle. If you neglect your health, if you don't exercise, if you don't eat properly, sooner or later it's going to begin to show up. If you begin to feed upon doubtful material and things that make you think negatively, if you begin to feed upon the sinful things of this world that make you question the Lord and His will for your life, and suddenly your health begins to suffer, there is a way that we can be strong in the Lord. It's why I love Psalms, because Psalms has taught me how to pray. Psalms has taught me how to rejoice when I didn't know the right words to give God thanks for. I'm a rich man. And if an accountant was to look at my finances, he'd say, you're deluded, preacher. You're not a rich man. But I'm rich in love. I'm rich in health. I'm rich in my marriage. I'm rich with my children. I'm rich in vision. I can't wait to see Jesus Christ one day because I know he has won a battle for me. And as I pray with thanksgiving, I'm richer as I do that. But then there are times when I grieve and I come before the Lord and I say, God, I don't know how to handle this and I go to the Psalms because for over 40 years I've been living with those Psalms and I know how to pray when words fail me and sometimes even praying in the spirit doesn't satisfy but praying the words of the Psalm and sometimes when I need wisdom it's the book of Proverbs that comes back you're strong in the Lord as you pray and you study his word and you practice those holy disciplines that we teach in discovering spiritual maturity here at Woodland 
He says, also be strong in his mighty power. And friends, you need to know there is more power available to you. The power of heaven, the fire of heaven, the resources of heaven. Don't sit there smugly because you've got a retirement check or a good job or you've got good health or you've got a paid for a home and you think I'm rich and I don't need nothing. God says to you, you are blind and you are miserable. You're in a context where you're paid for a home and your retirement won't amount to a hill of beans against the battle that we are in. We need revival. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the resources of heaven if we're going to conquer this powerful battle that we are in today. Can you say amen? Be strong in the Lord. <laughs> then he says, put on all of God's armor. And I think you need to take a careful look at that. It's not armor that was designed for you. It's God's armor. It's God's armor. God has given to you Him very self. And all of these weapons that He mentions, they're mental weapons, those defensive weapons. They're mental weapons. They have to do with how you think and how you approach life. And it doesn't matter if you go through and you just kind of mentally put them on every day. It doesn't matter if you just kind of walk as I do, knowing that Christ is all of these. When I look at this weapon, I realize this armor of God. Christ Jesus is all of this to me. Jesus is the truth. And with the belt, the soldier would gird up his, his loins. He'd gird up all of the garments who would hang down and hinder him. He'd, he'd gird up and hold up his breastplate. And so truth around the middle of our lives, the heart of our lives, truth helps us because we are not led astray. We are not led from the cross. We are not led astray by the philosophies and the schemes and the strategies of this world or of the devil because we have the truth once delivered for all the saints. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ is our righteousness. I will stand before Jesus because I've been a good man. My good works are as filthy rags, but I will stand before Jesus Christ because Jesus has imputed to me. He has given to me. He has made his righteousness yours and mine through the blood that he shed for us at Calvary. Let's give him another hand of praise this morning. <laughs> It's his righteousness. I loved hearing the testimonies. I loved hearing the stories at President Bush's two funerals this week. I particularly enjoyed John Meacham's eulogy of President Bush. Becky mentioned to me, she says, why can't they say all these things where people are still living? And I wrote down in my journal that night, be sure you tell everybody all these good qualities you want them to know. You never know how much longer somebody's going to be around. So you call them, you write them a card, you tell them today, you affirm them. But the next day I was listening to Meacham being interviewed. And he told this story. He said, you know, when I finished the eulogy, I called President Bush. And he said, I um, said, Mr. President, I've finished with the eulogy that I'm going to read at your funeral. And now during the eulogy, he talked about how President Bush never liked anybody to talk about him. He just didn't want to bring attention to himself. And he was known for just giving all the credit to others. And so he flew up to Kennebunkport and he read the eulogy to him. He said the president never moved his head. He never moved his eyes. And when he got finished, he looked at John and he said, John, it's all about me. He says, can't you say something about somebody else? He says, well, Mr. President... He said, the eulogy is supposed to be all about you. That's what I've done is write about you. And you see, I want you to know the day will come when somebody will read my eulogy. Somebody will read your eulogy. 
But what I want them to talk about is not me. I want them to talk about Jesus Christ because when I stand before Jesus, it will not be because of works of righteousness I have done. It will be because I serve a risen Savior who died for my sins and I am the righteousness of God and you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And sweetheart, if that doesn't set your wood on fire, your wood is all soaking wet this morning. Somebody praise him. Somebody praise him. He's the peace of the gospel. My faith is in him. My salvation is him. He is the word of God. John talks about in that first epistle, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Don't you love Jesus this morning? Can we make much of Jesus? Can we praise his name today? Somebody praise him again today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Here I am worshiping you, bowing down in spirit and truth. Holy hands lifted to you. You're going to sing that song all week long. And I tell you, you're going to enjoy that better than have a holly jolly Christmas anyway. Here I am worshiping you. Then he tells us we got to stand firm against something. Paul brings this out in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter in verse 5. He says, you've got to cast down imaginations and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, when I read these, when I read these, and then I go back and I look in Colossians and Corinthians where Paul also addresses the spiritual warfare, there's something that really comes out to me that I hope I can bring out to you the way it just came out to me. The devil is a defeated devil. And yet we're still in a real battle. And I hope you'll still love me, but I loved some of those movies that preachers aren't supposed to love. I love some of those movies like First Blood. <laughs> now you're laughing at me. But you know what I'm talking about since you're laughing because you've watched the movie too. So we're all sinners together in the hands. <laughs> you see, the devil is a defeated devil. And you've been given a sword. Now what's the purpose of a sword? The purpose of a sword is to draw blood. Matter of fact, I almost bought one to church with me this morning, but I was pretty motivated this morning and I thought I really would draw blood. I have two swords and I was worried that my blood would get drawn if I asked one of you to come up here and help me. So I, I, I just, I got to thinking about this. what's the purpose? The purpose of the sword is to draw blood. The purpose of the sword. And Jesus, when he met the enemy, how did he meet him? He met him with the word of God. And the enemy came at him with vain thoughts. He came at him with vain imaginations. Al, he told him, he says, you can tell these bread, these stones to become bread. Al, he told him, he says, if you will bow down to me you, and, and worship me, I'll give you all these thoughts. It's mental. Remember I told you these are mental weapons. And Jesus 
pulls out the sword, the enemy's got his sword, and Jesus, every time, he just, he draws blood on the devil. So much so that the devil ran from Jesus. Remember that? The Bible says he left Jesus until a more appointed time. And he thought that appointed time, look at that cross right there for just a moment. He thought that appointed time was right here at Calvary. When Jesus breathed his last breath and he died upon that cross, hell began to rejoice <coughs> because they thought that even though Jesus had drawn first blood, the devil had defeated him. But three days later, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same power the Bible says that dwells in you by faith in Christ, the same power that will quicken your mortal bodies, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead showed that the devil was defeated and you can defeat the devil this morning. Don't buy into this garbage about how big and how strong the devil is. Every single believer in place can draw the blood of the devil if you use the word of the Lord, but not if you use your mind, not if you use your scheming, not if you use your imaginations, not if you ignore the word of God, but by using and living upon the wisdom of Proverbs and the prayers of Psalms, you can defeat the enemy yourself today. Somebody say praise God this morning. Now, some of you are not going to listen to me. Some of you are going to sit there like a knot on a log and you say, Pastor, this is Christmas. You ought to be sweet and curry your knives. That's next Sunday. <laughs> this morning is salt and pepper. You see, some of you are not going to listen and you'll give a foothold to the devil. And you're, you're a Christian, but you'll give a foothold to the devil. He said, no, I won't. Yes, you will. I've been your pastor for too long. There ain't a whole lot I don't know. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Oh, pastor, don't read that verse. For anger gives a what? Foothold to the devil. And some of you right now are thinking, oh, I should have settled this with my wife before I came to church this morning. Some of you are thinking, I should have settled this with my husband before I came to church. One time, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. One time, the prophet Elisha, he lived in a town called Dothan, Alabama, excuse me, Dothan, Israel, somewhere in there. <laughs> and Ben-Hadad was the Syrian king. And Ben-Hadad, every time he would attack Israel, he would get defeated because Elisha would tell the king of Israel what to do. So Benadab was convinced that he was a, there was a spy, and so he called in all of his wise men and his advisors and his generals, and he said, listen, there's not a spy. We're all loyal to you, Benadab, but there's a man of God, and there is a man of God in this room. There should be a man of God in every home. There should be a woman of God in every home. There should be a child of God in every home that's here today. He says, there's a man of God, and he tells the king of Israel what you are saying even in your bedroom. Well, Ben-Adad thought he could defeat God, just like a lot of people today think they can defeat God by putting doubt in your mind or putting questions in your mind. So Ben-Adad sends these armies to capture the prophet, and one day one of, one of Elisha's servants is going out to get water. It's still dark, and as he goes to get water, he sees all of these chariots of Ben-Adad has come to capture Elijah. Elijah is not an early riser. He's still getting up. He's getting his coffee brewed and that sort of stuff, and he comes in, and he's all in a panic, and he says, he's 
says, Elisha, Elisha, Benadad, they've surrounded us. They're going to take us. They're going to kill you. And Elisha just simply looks at him. He says, Lord, open his eyes. And when his eyes are open, he sees the power of God manifested all about them as though it was horses and chariots of fire. And that little man made this statement, they that be for us are more than they be, and this is my way, but they, they're more than be against us. You need to understand when God says be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, there is more power surrounding you this morning. And the only reason you don't understand that is you fed too much much upon the things and the materialism of this world. This world is not a closed system. This world is the creation of Almighty God. It is my Father's world. There are angels surrounding this place. There is the Holy Spirit in this place. You are safe in the arms of God. So be strong and stand firm against the powers of the evil and do not give the devil a single foothold into your life. Not a single foothold. <coughs> As I was riding this week, I thought about Becky and I climbing those rocks this summer. We climbed that cliff, all because that cliff had all kinds of cracks and crevices. And I remember looking back down to Mark, who was belaying me as I went up that mountain, and I said, you know what? This reminds me of a lot of Christians I know. They're trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. And they're giving the devil all kinds of footholds and cracks in their lives to climb up. And friends, I want you to know you don't have to live that way. There is a place to live an overcoming life in Jesus. Can you say amen? amen. Stephen Travis wrote these words, In the New Testament, it is not believers who tremble at the power of Satan, but demons who tremble at the power of God. You say, Pastor, isn't this a little bit paranoid? It's not paranoid. Back in the 80s, when I was a young pastor in Macon, Georgia, one of our Marine captains that I had led to Christ and became one of my closest friends, he owned his own business. He wrote, this is in the days computer software is beginning, he wrote the software for Fireman Funds Insurance and became a multimillionaire overnight because of his skills. And I never will forget Charlie bringing in to me one day a book. He said, you need to read this book. Charlie's life had been because of things that he had seen and done in Vietnam was just a mess. And, and I read this book, The Road Less Traveled, and the author was on the right path. But by the time the author wrote his second book, Scott Peck, Scott Peck had become a Christian. Because one of the things that Scott Peck was interested in, and if you've read the book, it was the existence of evil and how do you explain evil. And Scott Peck writes about dealing with a woman named Charlene and spends a number of pages dealing with this woman named Charlene and how that she just had pure evil in her life and how she constantly toyed with him wanting to exude or exert power in his life. She had to be in control. And suddenly it became real to Peck, this world is not a closed system. And Peck, who wrote two New York Times best-selling books, talks about Satan and the existence of evil. Friends, I am not being paranoid, and you are not being paranoid, but we're not afraid. Paranoia is when you're afraid of things that are not there. Paranoia is when you're trying to escape from threats that are not there. But it is not paranoia when you recognize there's a real enemy warring against your marriage. There's a real enemy warring against your 
your children. There's a real enemy warring against this church, warring against Brownstown and Woodhaven and Flat Rock and Taylor and New Boston. There's a real enemy warning against this country. It is not paranoia. It is the wisdom of God delivered to us. And we have got to stand firm. We have got to stand against the wiles of the devil, but we have got to be strong in the Lord. William Shakespeare understood this when he wrote these words in Hamlet. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And if your philosophy somehow or another is that Jesus is just a sign of the good in the world and Satan is just a sign of the evil of the world, then friends, you have lost the battle already. Jesus Christ is Lord. The devil is not his equal, but he is a defeated, wounded foe trying to defeat every person that he can before the end of time comes. So real Christianity is a fight. Real Christianity is a fight. A book that had a lot of impact on my life as a young Christian was a book by Watchman Nee, Sit, Watch, and Stand. It's an outline basically of the book of Ephesians. But as I've grown older and I have never suffered any things that Pastor Nee suffered in China, I've come to realize that part of the book he missed and that is that, yes, we do sit with Christ in heavenly places. Yes, we do stand firm. And yes, we do keep watch. You find all of those things in the book of Ephesians. But Paul comes down and he says, now, final word. You've got to fight. You've got to war. You've got to wear this armor. We used to sing a song as a child in church called, let go and let God have his wonderful way. Your burdens will vanish your night turn to day. Let go and let God have his wonderful way. And how I wish that was true, that you could bring your problems here. You could just let go of cancer and let God have his wonderful way. You could bring your marriage problems here and let go and let God have his wonderful way. That you could bring your problems work here and just let go and let God have his wonderful way and suddenly your burdens will vanish and your night turn to day. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? That sounds like a Disney movie to me. No, we do let go. We give it to Christ. But at the same time, we put on a helmet of salvation. We wear the breastplate of righteousness. We gird our loins with truth. We shod our feet with the shoes of the gospel of peace. And we grab the sword of the Spirit. And with the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And we pray steadily as Christians gathered around these altars last night. And they were praying for people suffering with cancer. They were praying for missionaries overseas. They were praying with people with financial problems. They weren't letting go thinking that burdens will vanish. They realized there was a battle to fight and sometimes we have to help one another fight those battles. Paul said, I am in chains. Pray for me. Pray that I will have boldness. Pray that I will have courage. Why would Paul pray for boldness and courage if it was not a fight? I'm saying to the church this morning, wake up! Wake up! God does want to give you a peaceful home, a peaceful marriage, a peaceful job, but there is a real enemy out there and you've got to see the context in which you're living in today. Philippians 4, 7 says, His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1 says, We have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. It would be nice if he followed along and says, Now, just get a glass of sweet iced tea. Squeeze a lime or a lemon in there. 
Get you a fan from the funeral home and lean back. Rock in the chair and watch me do my stuff. He's done done his stuff. Look at the cross. He's done done his stuff. He's done rose from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says to you and me, go you into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen without a battle. That's the reason missionaries are being martyred today. That's the reason Christians are being martyred today. In a book I'm reading by an Episcopalian priest right now, it said that our church is running the danger now because we are educating our seminarians that Jesus will not return, that that is a myth. We're educating our seminarians that the Bible is just an ancient piece of literature. It is not the Word of God. We're educating our seminarians to do what the prophet Ezekiel said, to call what is right wrong and call what is wrong right. Friends, hear me today. There is a battle. And the reason you may not see the demonic activity that I've seen in Africa, that I've seen in South America, and I've seen in Asia, it's because in Europe and in the United States and North America and Mexico historically the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached and our civilization was built upon a foundation of the word of God but as we slow down and relax more and more and say it really doesn't matter that the gospel doesn't matter and we give up our heritage of faith we will see the increase of demonic activity this month's Atlantic Monthly Magazine has got an article on how exorcisms are on the rise educated people who don't know how how to deal with the evil are seeking out exorcists because they don't know how to deal with the devil. You say, Pastor, have you ever seen anybody set free from a demon? Yes, I have. Have you ever seen demons cast out of people? Yes, I have. But they have been in places where the gospel has not been preached and evil has taken over. I am sounding an alarm to our church. Friends, we have what we have because there were people that came before us that believed that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, that the Bible was what it said it was, and that the power of God was manifested in their lives. It is time for us as born-again, blood-washed, Holy Spirit-filled Christians to one more time stand up and say, we will fight the good fight of faith. If you agree with that this morning, say amen. amen. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the 1800s, wrote these words. Let me talk to you about true Christianity. There's a vast quantity of religion current in the world that is not true, genuine Christianity. Now listen, this is in the 1800s. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy conscience, but it's not good money. It's not the real thing which was called Christianity 1800 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about the religion of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring. They literally know nothing at all. Self-denial would be like fasting, giving sacrificially. Let us consider these propositions. The saddest symptom about so many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money, they go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or even twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, the great spiritual warfare, it's watchings and strugglings, it's agonies and anxieties, it's battles and contests. 
Of all this, they appear to know nothing at all. Let us consider these propositions. Then he finally sits down and he says, do you find in your hearts a spiritual struggle? Are you conscious of two principles within you contending for the mastery? Do you feel anything of war in your inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. And a real soldier can be known as much by his inward warfare as by his inward peace. See, Pastor, what is he saying? I have peace with Christ. I have peace in my home. I have peace. I go to bed with peace. I wake up in peace. I hope and pray that you have the same. But there's also this inward war that's going on. For people that I love that are far from God. For people that I love, like in the first service this morning, someone came to me and said, I grew up believe in all of this but not anymore it's an inward war it's an inward war when somebody has to go to the mental health center and I go and sit with them and hold their hands and pray and rock there's an inward war when I have to go in the hospital sometime with a cancer patient or someone who's struggling with the disease because of something they did before they came to know Christ. Yes, I have peace. But if all I have was peace in my heart, if I understand the words of Bishop Ryle, if all I have is peace in my heart for me and my own, then I am not what the New Testament calls a Christian. Because a true believer has this inward battle because of what he sees sin doing in the hearts and the lives of other people. Recently, I woke up. Becky was sitting in bed and weeping. Why? What's wrong? Her heart broken over some folks that are lost. I've woken up so many times when Becky would be praying even while she's asleep calling out people's names in prayer. If you don't want anybody, but if you don't want me to know about anything, don't tell Becky because she prays out loud in her sleep and she'll cry and I'll hold her and just plead the blood of Jesus over her. You say, Pastor, is that real? That's as real as this pulpit I'm standing behind. There's peace, but there's an inward war. Jesus put it like this, and I think this will be on the screen, Matthew 11 and verse 12. From the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. What's he saying? If the kingdom is going to advance, 
Now look at me. Look right here for just a moment. This is a really confusing scripture to some people. If the kingdom of God is going to advance, it has to prevail against the gates of hell. But the gates of hell will always attack the church. But if the church will be the church, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Get it? Let me say it again. We have to prevail against the gates of hell. But hell will always be attacking our faith. But hell will never prevail against the church as long as we are faithful to the Lord and His Word. And then finally this morning, in conclusion, Jesus won the war, but I must remain at my battle station. After the battle, you will be standing firm. So how do you remain at your battle station? First of all, you call on today if you're not a Christian. What are you waiting for? I have talked with some of you and I understand your doubts and I understand your questions, but as I've told you before, listen to, I love you. There are some things you're not going to understand until first of all you surrender to Jesus Christ. And for some of you who you've crossed the line and you've wondered why am I having battles, my friend David Newberry that gave his heart to Christ, David said to me, he said, Pastor, before I became a Christian, I didn't have any problems. But since I've become a Christian, I'm getting attacked from all corners. I said, David, welcome to the battle. You're in the army of the Lord. It's why such songs were sang at President Bush's funeral this week. He's trampling out the, the vineyards. He's trampling out those vintage presses. He's, he's forcefully moving on in our world. History is coming to a close. Jesus will return. And because Jesus won the war, doesn't mean the battle is over. I've shared it before, but D-Day was won. Becky and I were personally taken up and down all the battle zones and all the landing places, doing services, getting the history of D-Day explained. I can still remember the sand blowing in her eyes and standing there with an old man and praying with him. He climbed Point du Hoc. And of all those Texas Rangers, only a handful survived. And with my arms around his shoulder, he laid a wreath to his comrades. It says, to my friends who died young from one who's grown old. I listen to elderly French and Belgian people tell me about how they knew that once the Allies had landed in that terrible storm and you saw the battlements of Hitler, they're still there. You can go in them. There's still live minefields. You can't go in there. They knew, we knew Hitler was defeated. But the most fearsome fighting and the most allied deaths took place until we got to VE Day. The war was won, but there's still a battle going on. So don't just cross the line.
and make church a Sunday morning thing. Don't be foolish. Don't let your family go out without praying over your family. Call upon the Lord for your children every day. Call upon the Lord for your husband, for your wife, for your neighbors, for your pastors, for your church. Don't be quiet when people stand up and use the name of the Lord in vain. Remind them that He is the Lord who saved you and forgave you of your sins. If they can God this and Jesus that, then we can God bless this and we can God bless that because greater is He that is within us than He that's within the world. The curses of hell will fill every time before the power of God. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you can somehow or another ignore your children being in church like these kids. Somehow or another, your little league, your football, your soccer, it's all more important than church. Your kids need Timber Ridge. Your teenagers need elevation. They need climbers. Think that once a week for you is enough. You may sit there pompously thinking to yourself, Preacher, I know what's best for me. God knows what's best for you. And that's why I'm in this pulpit this morning, declaring to you the word of the Lord. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves even more as you see the day approaching. Well, I don't need to pray every day. Who do you think you are, sir? you think you are look at what's happening in our culture and our society look at what's happening to so many pulpits that once used to thunder with the voice of the Lord and a confidence in the Word of God I've sat in those churches overseas where a handful of old women sit there in their little covered heads and someone stands in the pulpit going through all the form and the ritual but there's no fire and there's no fervency why because somebody didn't remain at the battle station an affair a loss of confidence in the word of the Lord a trial a battle my daddy wasn't healed of cancer my parents divorced I asked God to give me a job that I wanted and he didn't. All these things that I hear. I just finished a book. It broke my heart. I've always had a great interest in the European theater. and As I read about World War II in Asia and Japan, Becky's grandfather fought behind the lines. I love Granddaddy Gibson. He did guerrilla warfare behind the lines for the United States was missing in action, he and his men, for a long time. Like so many veterans, he would not talk about it until one day on his deathbed I sat with him and he just opened up and began to tell me things. Reminded him of the faithfulness of Jesus told me of the torture that was inflicted, the sufferings, the beatings, the electrical shocks, things that were done.
to our GIs. He told me of the savagery showed to the Filipinos. There's not a thing that you and I don't enjoy in this country that somebody didn't pay a price for. If you think, by golly, that somehow or another you're a self-made man or woman and you made it on your own, you are just, you've just lost your mind. Somebody paid a brutal price for you to be where you're at. I remember when Granddaddy gave his heart to Jesus. I was preaching in Hainville, Georgia. Hainville Assembly of God. He sat there weeping and crying. As I've done for over 40 years, when I asked people to pray, he prayed with me. He gave his heart to Christ. Not too long ago, I sat with one of our Vietnam veterans who's not doing well. He looked at me and he says, Pastor, are you sure that Christ has forgiven me of everything? That when I die, I'll see Jesus. On the authority of his word, I'm positive. I stood in the Henry Ford Hospital just moments for a man from our church who called and asked that I would come down not knowing that he would die that very day. And he reached up out of his bed took my hands. He says, Pastor, are you sure? If I've learned anything, the devil doesn't stop when you're dying. He will fight you all the way to the grave. He fought Martin Luther all the way to the grave. Luther confessed. He fought Mother Teresa all the way to the grave. Is there peace? Yes. But there's a war as well. So when Paul says, peace with you, dear brothers and sisters, may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is chained a Roman soldier maybe he's sitting there I'm just using my imagination it may not have happened just like this but bear with me they were so afraid of this little man he's sitting chained to two Roman soldiers they're so afraid of him he sees the helmet and he goes my salvation I'm going to die he knows he's going to die 
He sees the breastplate and he says, that's my righteousness. My heart is safe in Christ. He sees the shoes, the gospel of peace. And he sees the belt and he goes, I know it's truth. I'm going to die. And he sees the sword. I believe the word of God. And then he remembers. Until I die. My prayers have power with God. And he prays for you. Peace. Be upon those who love Jesus. Eternally. I ask each of these men, including my granddaddy and my son, why'd you do it? Andrew said, because I love my children, Dad. I love my country. And I don't want what's happening there to happen here. Granddaddy, why did you do it? He said, because I love my country. I asked the man in our church, I can't tell you his name. Why did you do it? I love my country. Jesus won the war. And we got to be faithful to VE Day until Jesus comes again. I don't know how to do church. I don't know how to do communion. But I do know how to love Jesus. And when Jesus says on the night that he's dying, don't miss this. This is my body. And they didn't get it, I don't think, Ron. I mean, they've done Passover all their lives. Some of you, you don't even remember when you took your first communion. But they've done Passover all their lives, so they know how it's supposed to go. And that night, Jesus says, this is my body, Christine. But when they see him hanging on the cross, they'll go. Now I get it. And that bread will never be the same. They know that the cup is to be passed. And when they take that cup of wine, maybe they've been looking forward to it. It's, it's refreshing. They know what it represents. But Jesus says, this is my blood. What are you talking about, Jesus? And when they see him after his scourging and his crucifixion, then they get it. I hope you get it this morning. And I hope like Peter and Paul and Mary and James and John, you'll be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And you will fight this fight until Jesus calls you home. Caleb deserves that. Your children deserve that. Your children deserve that. Our community needs that. This time I'd like to ask the, those who will be serving communion to take their place and prepare to serve our congregation as singers and musicians and worship team prepare. If you are our guest this morning, Again, we'd like to welcome you and 
also remind you that you don't need to be a member of Woodland Church to partake of communion with us, but only know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't crossed the line yet. You haven't made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're, you fit the category that Bishop Ryle spoke about. You're going through the motions. But if you were honest, there's no real Christianity in you today. And I don't say that with judgment. I, please, if you knew me, and if you do know me, you know I don't say that with any judgment. I say it with compassion because so much of what's passed on is not the gospel these days. The gospel is simply this. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Just, just listen for a minute and then we'll praise the Lord. He's the Son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary by the will of God. He grew up like any other little boy. He lived a sinless life. He performed miracles of healing, feeding the hungry, compassionate. He never called anyone a sinner. As a matter of fact, his harshest words were people like myself who teach and preach the Bible. But to all who believed upon him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. He was crucified for your sins. He died and was buried and on the third day he rose again. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming again. And he will judge both the living and the dead. And this great God did it for you and he did it for me and if you want to know him then I invite you to pray this prayer with me just say it quietly to him say Lord Jesus I'll never understand how you could love me so I'll never understand why you would bear my sins to the cross. But I believe that you did it so that your righteousness could become mine. And though I don't understand it all, today I repent of my sins. That means I turn away from my own life. To follow you Christ as much as I know how teach me and 
help me to grow in faith. For it's in Christ's name I pray. And no one is still looking around. It's in Christ's name that you pray. That means you prayed according to the will of God. If you did that, no one's looking but me, would you just hold up your hand and say, Pastor, I want you to know I'm committing my life to Jesus. God bless you. God bless you. Are there others this morning who say, I'm committing my life to Christ? Yes, sir. God bless you. Yes, sir. God bless you. Well, church, let's give the Lord a hand of praise. Would you do that? Now, the growth work is just kind of my outline of the book of Ephesians. But here's what I want to say. I always have confidence in the word that I preach, but there are times when I feel like I come with something that the Greek word that's used in the Bible is called a rhema word. That's not weird, it just means a living word. And I believe this was a living word for our church. You don't understand, we as a staff don't really understand how this all came together so perfectly for this season for our church and ends the Sunday before our Christmas celebrations begin. We pride ourselves on planning well. We didn't plan this at all. I think the Lord has spoken to us in this book of Ephesians. And I pray you'll go back and re-listen to all of these messages and let's see what God is going to do in 2000. 19, 20, 20, I'm just looking three years just down the road saying, Lord, what's it going to look like three years from now? Can you say amen? I love you.